We'll go ahead and start, and uh, thank you for being here. Uh, my name is David Daggerford, and I'm the board chair of Phyllis Platt as the CEO. Why beginning with the end in mind? You have handouts, so there's no need for us to stand here and read the handouts. We just want to tell you a 10-year story how actually the title came from Phyllis. When we first met as a group in 2006, we decided about becoming an FQHC, and this is the ups and downs over 10 years, at one time down to 30000 in the bank, and how we made it to an FQHC. At the end, we'll be glad to answer any questions. We're going to try and be as transparent as we can. The objectives are obvious. They're, they're listed in your handout. Um, I just want to make the no money, no mission. As Christian organizations, I think we all do it. I'm certainly guilty of it. We get so go, go, go on the mission stuff, we forget the money. In our first FQHC lookalike review, uh, the three people from HRSA that reviewed us got done, and their final message to us is, hey, guys, remember, no money, no mission. Doctor can't get all wound up with a patient for two or three hours, people get mad, leave, that you've got to remember if you have no money, your mission's lost. So we're going to try and present to you how we went through ten years of this, and I'll be honest, until the day we received the FQHC, I think we weren't sure this would ever happen. Just to show you, and what, what, you're going to hear the story, but up at the top is the early years in the clinic. It's 2,600 square feet with six exam rooms and two providers. And just this last summer, we expanded to 6,700 square feet with four, almost five providers. And you'll see the story as we go through. You had to pick a neighborhood. So in 2006, we had a group of people from multiple Baptist churches, multiple denominations, this church, and we said, let's use what we had learned in this clinic from the CCHF people, uh, which I'm sure you know speak here about every year. And so first you had to find a medically underserved area. And when you have two FQHCs in town, that's a little tough. But this particular neighborhood was between the two other FQHCs and was a neighborhood of 18 to 20,000 with zero providers. So it was hard to argue that they were getting adequate medical coverage. If they took a bus to either of the other locations, they had to go through two bus stops. Uh, poverty rate, the median income in this neighborhood, 25 to 34,000. Unemployed, over a third. Uh, predominantly African-American. So we went through the standard, go to the map, find the medical underserved area. You can't be a lookalike or an FQHC unless you have an MUA. Find one that will work, and then, of course, you have to contact the neighborhood. We'll talk about that. So we obviously live in a world of acronyms. So just to make sure that um, everybody uh, understands, FQHC is Federally Qualified Health Center. So the emphasis with FQHCs is community health. 
a little bit different model um, that really seeks to integrate services and provide a significant enabling component, uh, enabling in a good way in terms of supports that address barriers to help patients access care. Uh, and then MUA is medically underserved area. So we did have to um, make the case for that initially, as David said, even though this was a very poor neighborhood. Um, it, we chose to focus on two particular zip codes in the west end of Louisville. So um, we're not too far from here, as a matter of fact. But one of the key questions we had to think about from the beginning was what model were we going to use? Um, and we'll talk in a bit about key people who are involved in the planning process. So in terms of getting some consultation from different people and looking at what the opportunities were, this is probably the big, it, this is not probably, it is the biggest decision we made uh, in terms of are we going to go down the path of becoming an FQHC or look at the model of a free clinic. So what's up here was kind of the checklist of the decisions that we made, but why this was so important really is because this decision drove everything else in terms of how we put together a business model, a staffing model, um, the board, all of those kind of things were really driven by this initial decision. So I would say number one key step in the process was uh, making this decision as a, a group um, and then knowing where to go from that point. We're going to look at how we got to FQHC through planning, buy-in, open clinic, and then a look-alike. So let's start with uh, planning. Uh, I practiced as an interventional cardiologist, so I knew nothing about these type of clinics. I started this conference and directed it the first 10 years and learned from a lot of people, but as an individual, I knew nothing about this kind of clinic. So you have to depend upon key people. You can have a heart for this, but you go nowhere fast. I think the first key person, and for us it was Bob Campice, there's many others, uh, somebody who nationally knows the entire FQHC organization, how it works, how you get information, and Bob had started 33 FQHCs east of the Mississippi. And in 2008, he drove down to the house and he started using all these acronyms Phyllis talked about. I knew none of them. I knew none of this. And he just said, over the next couple of years, you and I are going to meet all the time and talk and I'm going to teach it. So I think it was key to have a person who nationally knew the organization, knew HRSA, knew all this stuff that you could call all the time. The second key person was to have somebody in the state. And Phyllis became the CEO after we received her FQHC grant. But until then, she was our consultant. Phyllis wrote key grants for FQHC organizations all over the state of Kentucky. She knew our Kentucky Primary Care Association. She knew all the people in the state. So if you have a national person first, you need somebody in the state who also has key knowledge of all this stuff. There was really no difference in knowledge between her and Bob. They both know the same stuff. It's just Phyllis looks at it from a state level. Bob looked at it from a national level. And the tons and tons of free information they gave us uh, is why she had to become CEO. I think I owed her $2 million in <laughs> advice. And so Dan Fountain spoke at this conference starting in 98. He passed away a couple years ago. 
what kind of clinic were you going to have? And there are books you can buy from Amazon, from Dan, on caring for the whole person. He set that model up in the Congo in the 80s and 90s. And uh, so we went through that entire exercise, how you care for a person physically, socially, psychologically, and spiritually. And we do that to this day. We have a prayer room. Uh, Phyllis is having a breakfast in a couple weeks with all the ministers. I think there's 23 or 25 in the neighborhood as we administer to patients spiritually. Stan Rowland still speaks at this conference on neighborhood transformation. And at the beginning, a group of us went to his week-long course. I think he does it in a weekend now. But it was how to use the assets of the neighborhood to change the neighborhood. We thought it made no sense to go in there and say, hey, we're going to start a clinic if we weren't going to try and work with the neighborhood. So you can just see all these layers of key people. Then Steve Hester is the chief medical officer of the largest healthcare corporation in Louisville, Norton Healthcare, and he was excited, gave us tons of information. If you don't have your state PCA working with you, you get nowhere fast. So we had all these leaders. We lacked one thing, somebody in the neighborhood. Rudy Davidson had just started in Shawnee, the Shawnee Neighborhood Association, and they made the headlines in the Courier Journal about the time we were going to do this that they had driven all liquor sales out of the Shawnee neighborhood. They drew a map with police. They showed that liquor sales increased crime, and so they were strong. So then the next point is community buy-in. And we went to Shawnee Neighborhood Association, we just started at the beginning, talked about the things we wanted to do, told them the things we wanted, but then we shut up and said, what do you all want? And we recorded all that, and we tried to listen more than we talked. And then, based upon Stan's advice, we did a neighborhood survey. At the time, Phyllis was a professor at Spalding. She brought her students out, and we surveyed the neighborhood. What they see as the assets of the neighborhood? What they see as the weaknesses? Would they come if we started a health care center? What did they want in the health care center? So by the time we got ready to really look into starting this, we had national advice, state advice, uh, PCA from your state advice, professional advice from hospitals, and then we had the neighborhood buy into it. We still have half our board is from the Shawnee Neighborhood Association. It's a tight-knit ship. What's going on in the neighborhood? We ask the questions and listen. So then we had to open the clinic. And the advice from Phyllis and Bob and others were, of course, I, I would have had a grand idea. Let's build a $5 million building, 50 stories, 80 doctors. I, I'd have thought too large. And they said, whoa, you've got to be small enough to afford it. Because remember, from 2011 to 2015, we did not receive a dime of federal money. We had to do it on patient care, begging, borrowing, going out, giving talks. And so we found a French plaza that is right in the middle of Shawnee right in the middle of the busing district, the traffic, the, lots of our patients walked to the clinic, and we had two 1,300-square-foot empty spaces with a huge wall in between 
and the Kentucky Baptist changers that I knew nothing about, Phyllis and her husband, uh, who's a minister in Shelbyville, told us about them. And these college students came and in 48 hours took out everything. And it, when they left 48 hours later, we had a perfect 2,600-square-foot empty building to build out. That cost a lot of money. They did it for free. Next problem was the rent. Tony said he would go 3 $4 an hour under the average rent and increase it slowly. We sat there and figured, yeah, well, he says, I'll just give you rent free the first two years. So it's, it's things like that. He saw that we meant it. We were down there. And then the final thing was the cost of the build-out. And I came out of the church where Phyllis's husband's the minister and an architect tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I hear all this stuff. Can we draw you out some plans? And I thought he'd have a plan about like this. And we went to his office and this stuff's all spread out. And I had a friend, Bill Carpenter, who's in business and building. And he whispered in my ear, he says, that's twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 worth of uh, architect plans he's letting you look at. So I thought, great. And it, but he didn't charge. So then I said, how much will it cost to build out Shawnee Christian Healthcare Center? He said, about 400000 And I said, and I quote, we'll be back in about 20 years when we have the money. And then he looked at me and said, what if we just do it for free? And so they built it out for free with all the subs not charging. And in the end, it cost us $8,000 for permit. Now, before I turn it back to Phyllis, what am I leaving out? Why, why, do, I think, why do we all think this is happening? What was the board doing all the time? What were, I mean, I, I, this kind of stuff doesn't just happen, I know, but you get frustrated. Unfortunately, I'm a frustrated type A who you, you think nothing's going to work. And yet these things, these doors kept opening that we're telling you about. Obviously, it was prayer. And if there's one thing about the people on the West End, they are prayer warriors. And to the women in the group, I hate it every time we have a board meeting and there's only two of the ten are men. And I hate it when I have to pray because when the women pray, it sounds like they're reading Psalms or Song of Solomon or something. And I mean, we have real prayer warriors in Shawnee and, and it made a huge difference. And I think, you know, that goes to the point, too, of I hope what you heard in there was the importance of community buy-in. Mr. French, who um, provided the rent at no cost for a couple years, um, is very committed to the neighborhood. So without his buy-in, that would have been a difficult uh, financial barrier to overcome. And then not only is 50% of our board from the neighborhood, 100% of our board members use the services at the clinic. And our site reviewers from the federal grant folks um, were just kind of a Astounded by the fact that everyone who's on our board feels confident in the services we provide and use those services. Um, so we told you in the beginning that we chose to go with the FQHC model. And um, so, again, that caused us to do some things with our board as we developed policies. There are some significant requirements with that model that you have to meet in order to be eligible for the Federally Qualified Health Center um, funding. Um, but one of the options that came to us, we did not receive a grant with our initial um, application. So we chose to look at the look-alike model, which is basically you are held to the same standards of the FQHC, but you just don't get a grant. So you get to do all of those hard things with no uh, financial support. 
but again, because we have that partnership with Norton Hospital, who provided some significant funding, with some local community foundations who provided that funding, it allowed us, I think, to continue. And, of course, the relationship we have with Southeast Christian Church as a ministry partner. Um, and really many churches, we get a check on a regular basis from churches in the neighborhood um, who know that our goal, our mission is holistic care, and they're a part, partner with us in those ways. Um, so the lookalike application became a stepping stone for us. Um, we met those requirements. Uh, the benefits of that is it really makes you tighten the ship um, in terms of knowing if you're on the right path and uh, having those policies and procedures in place that really will set you up for success in moving toward a full FQHC. So last year in August, um, we, in response to our second application, we received uh, an award notice that we had been funded. David sends that to me in an email and says, this is a joke, right? So remember, he told you he's a skeptic. He's a skeptic times 100. So, um, and I, my reply back was, no, this is real, and we just got $566,000. Um, so one of the things we'll talk about later is just the fact that this all came about in God's timing. So as we think about the prayers that went before us, the prayers that went with every application, the struggles that you'll hear about um, some with staffing and structure and those kinds of things, but that God was always paving the way. Um, and so, you know, this was after multiple applications, um, some different things happening at the clinic. So, Today, um, you'll see where we started in 2011, um, where we are today, and that was actually probably mid-year, so we'll be even higher numbers in terms of patient visits. Um, but those things, again, didn't just happen. They happened because there were a lot of things going on behind the scenes. Um, we have an in your um, handout, there are some references, too, that you might want to take a look at. Uh, but as we established as a full FQHC, then we started to have some additional opportunities. One of those was that the local, um, our local school, which is a middle high school in a very high-need area, a very high-need school, what that means is um, poor student academic performance, poor graduation rates, um, kids dealing with a lot of different factors um, in the process of trying to come to school. So uh, they had reached out actually to David um, with the idea of it, would it be possible to do a school-based health clinic. Um, so we actually had included that in our second application that we would have our uh, community clinic site and then we would also have the school-based health center. Um, so in March of 2015, we opened the very first school-based health clinic uh, in Jefferson County Public Schools, which is the 16th largest school district in the nation, serving over 110,000 students. So the great thing about that is that that was truly an unexpected uh, opportunity that we had, but the FQHC funded, funding gave us the option to be able to say yes to that. Um, so I think, again, as we were preparing for moving to where we are today, um, this is our staff today. We, I think when I came last year, David, there were maybe 10 staff. Um, so last night I sent an email to everyone and counted, and we have 21. Um, so we went from about 10 to 21 over this last year. Um, as David said, we've expanded and renovated. We opened the school clinic. Um, and we started out with uh, neighborhood transformation even before there was a clinic. 
And one of the things that kind of was a bump in the road a little bit is neighborhood transformation developed sort of as its own program because it was kind of out there doing the work, um, the staff in that program alongside David and the board. And when the clinic opened, it was kind of like, okay, now we have a clinic and a neighborhood transformation program. Um, so one of the growing pains we had to, to deal with, and we did this a lot over the last year, was to, to get back to neighborhood transformation is the foundation of the clinic. It's not this separate thing. Uh, and that was a really kind of a challenging thing for staff who had even begun to see neighborhood transformation as the program over here and the clinic as a program over here. So we actually changed the name of, the, of that position uh, to patient and community engagement. One, more people know what that means compared to director of neighborhood transformation. But just as far as thinking about processes and how we had to step back a little bit and look at you know, how we had developed and how we really wanted to be true to the mission, um, even at the level of making sure that our staff and the community understood that it was the neighborhood transformation and the community engagement piece that provided the impetus and the, you know, the foundation for us to reach out to the community to do health services. We're going to look now at these circles that we hope we can tell you some of the pitfalls and still get done in time for plenty of questions. So the foundation is all in your handout. Uh, the framework, the values, there is absolutely no need for me to repeat that. But let me just mention a couple things, as Phyllis talked about, that we did before the clinic even opened. In that survey, they, we said, what's one of the needs? And they said, the youth have no program. None whatsoever. Now remember, we want to start a health care program, but we're out there trying to get architect plans and everything else. This was something we could do. So we formed the Shawnee Youth Advocates. We made it an over-Christian organization, and they came up with three things they wanted to fix in the neighborhood. Cracks in the sidewalks, bad lighting, poor signage. And just to make a long story short how they worked their way through getting money, these young people ended up presenting at multiple national meetings in Washington, D.C., and Atlanta. So it's cool to see people that are in an impoverished neighborhood that they know everybody thinks their high school stinks, that they have no outside activities. And the next thing, they're talking to Phyllis and other people. What should I take to Washington, D.C.? I'm going to be presenting in front of a major conference. What should I do? And, and that program goes to this day. Real quickly, obesity is obviously a problem. We got a, we received a $250,000 grant to do childhood obesity. And finally, there's a drug-free community grant in which we're the principal oversight of multiple organizations. So we've gone from this concept now that now when there are, I don't know how many organizations are working together on this. Thirteen. Thirteen. And we're the main receiving agent. We're the main one, which, I, which is credit to Phyllis and credit to the group. And then as far as community engagement, we have poster presentations, trunk or treat at Halloween, Christmas community where stuff's given away to those in need. So the point is, we're working outside as much as we're working on the clinic at the time all this is going on. 
The second thing to just really think about is focus. Um, we've told you a couple of times we did the community needs and assets uh, surveys. We collected over 800 surveys in that initial one, and that was knocking on doors at 10 o'clock in the morning alongside community members um, with students who participated with us. Um, but we also looked at under uh, age 25, 30% of our neighborhood population is in that age group. 40% is 25 to 50, and over 50 is 30%. So what does that mean as we think about um, the, the kinds of issues that we're going to look at and address and the programs that we need? Need. Um, we are 72% um, Medicaid population, so that means a significant number of our um, patients are well below the federal poverty guidelines. 8% uh, Medicare, 15% commercial payment, and 5% self-pay and sliding fee. In Kentucky, one of the things we also considered was the fact that um, Kentucky expanded Medicaid. So that had strong implications for our patients in our neighborhood to be able to access health insurance. Um, so we've worked really closely alongside our uh, neighbors in the community um, with that program. Uh, we don't provide uh, radiology on site. We don't do extensive labs on site. We have key partners who help with that. Um, we don't, I'm radiology, I meant to say x-ray. So we don't do those on site, but we have strong partners who help us with that. We have strong relationships with the hospitals. Um, so again, part of our decision making is what is it that we can provide directly um, and what is it that we need to find a strong partner to do. And so that's kind of how we came with our um, our service plan, and then reducing barriers to care. And this was a big one. David told you that, you know, if you looked at a map, it's only a couple of miles to the closest FQHC. But if you rode a bus, it would take you about 45 minutes um, and probably at least three bus exchanges. Um, so imagine being a mom and two sick babies trying to get to the doctor's office and having to make that bus ride. So the fact that we're right there in the neighborhood, we're within walking distance of the majority of our patients um, and much easier for them uh, to get in. And then overcoming health disparities. So being sensitive to the culture of our neighborhood, offering opportunities. One of the things that's exciting with the school clinic, um, we actually opened two new school clinics this, uh, this fall, but one of the schools that we serve has 20% of their student population who have asthma. Um, it's be, and a lot of environmental issues. The, it's near the factories. It's near the interstate. There are home issues that contribute to that as well. So being able um, to go in and do education with teachers, they've had two children who were admitted to ICU already this year because of asthma attacks at school. Part of that is understanding that asthma might look a little different in an African-American child than it does, you know, in a white child, and the genetics, if you will, of asthma. So just having that opportunity to work within our neighborhoods to address those kinds of issues. This is me, sorry. Structure. Um, we are a nonprofit organization. Um, that's been from the beginning. Um, I think, you know, in the beginning we even had to look at, we started out as neighborhood clinic or yes. what was the name Neighbor in the beginning? Neighborhood crushed um, 
Medical Neighborhood Christian Medical, yeah. So we ended up changing to a DBA, a Shawnee Christian Healthcare Center. I will also tell you, because I get this question a lot, even as we've gone into the schools, um, one of the things we did at the first school clinic was allow the students to have input on naming the school clinic. And so they elected to name the clinic the Wellness Center at Shawnee. It's at Shawnee High School. So we've kept that name at each of our other school clinics. But our logo, which is clearly... Christian oriented um, and our name is on everything that we do um, so we have not lost the sense of who we are and our Christian mission in, in going into the schools and that's an important thing for us and for the board the management team David was the volunteer everything for 10 years um, and volunteer CEO until we were funded and had the funds to do that uh, we had different people. I think one of the struggles, and maybe, David, I'll switch and let you talk about that, but one of the struggles was finding a strong financial person um, to help keep the finances in order. So, and you'll see that uh, financial expertise in a little bit, but let's just talk about it a minute. Um, we have no money. We're getting only funds. And we told you we'd tell you the pitfalls. And we're trying to make it go. So we start with a financial guru from the neighborhood who knows everything about financial expertise in the city of Louisville, where he's a financial manager, zero about health care. And he very quickly, because of all the rules and regulations of health care, said he could not do it. So then we had a lady who was a business manager and head of a Kentucky state-run medical program. So she knew medical care. She knew about children. She knew about Medicaid. She knew about all this. And she did this for us for three years. And I was just, I couldn't believe how great we were going. And then we heard we were going to get the look-alike. So now you need a CFO. We can't afford a CFO. So a retired CFO of a Fortune 500 company here in Louisville is a friend of mine. He said, I'll do it for one year, January 1st to December 31st. Then you've got to hire a CFO. So on January 3rd, 4th, 5th, uh, we sit down and meet in 2014. And I, I lay all this stuff out. Uh, Emily doesn't even let me write checks at home, so don't think that I know anything about finances. I don't, but I'm showing him all this stuff, and I'm thinking the lady that's doing all the work for us is great, and I go home. And about 8.30 that night, he calls and says, David, I've got the first order of business. And I said, sure, what is it? He said, we have to fire that lady. And I said, you have got to be kidding me of how great she's done. And he said, the 990 is the nonprofit." version of a tax return, which we had failed to turn in the first year we were open. And then the audit is required by the government. Neither had been done. And he said, David, when these audits come down and these 990s come down, your eyes are going to be open. We've got to let her go. He hangs up, and I don't sleep well at night, so during the night I compose my talk to her, how I'm going to both thank her and tell her it's time to move on. Then about 2 in the morning, I send it to this CFO to see what he thinks, except I hit the button to send to her. <laughs> and then I fell asleep, and I woke up about 5.30, and I saw that 
and I just went nuts. Needless to say, the conversation that morning about 8 o'clock wasn't... I, I, I messed up, and I admit it. But when the nine, I still didn't understand why he did this. But when the 990s came in, we had 20 or 30 plus thousand dollars in penalties over two years. Things that were done wrong. The auditors knew we had no money. That an audit is usually twenty thousand. They charged us eight, and they were out there forever. And when they finished, they said, "You know, you cost us thirty-two thousand dollars worth of work because your whole financial thing is so messed up." So the CFO knew it, but I didn't have that kind of knowledge. He was right. I went about it the wrong way by sending the email the wrong way. But the point I guess I'm saying is I don't know how you do it, but for us, we have a great CFO now. Uh, Susan and Phyllis work great together. We have a person who was in the medical financial area for decades, and it's working great. But just think when you're starting and you don't have the money, we tried to step it together as best we could. But now I realize you truly have to have somebody of CFO knowledge to make this thing run from the very beginning. And he was able to reverse all those penalties. He knew people in the state. He wrote letters. He did all this stuff. But we were in grave trouble. Yet at the monthly board meeting, the, what do you call the hand? The dashboard. The dashboard looked great. And so just that was mistake. That we bring up. And I think it's hard. One of the hardest things is balancing um, matching people who have such a passion for what you're doing and who want to be helpful, like the first actually couple of people who helped with finances. Um, so one thing I would advise as you're even thinking, regardless of which model you go with, is to think really clearly about job descriptions, even for your volunteers and your board members. And we've made some progress in that along the way, especially this last year of putting together a board document. So I know if I'm going to be on your board what I'm committed to. Um, our board members are very strong partners. Um, board composition is clearly defined by HRSA regulations in terms of what percent of people have to be in certain uh, categories as far as neighborhood members. Um, but the other thing is finding a good match with that. Um, that's also true in staffing. Fit matters. Um, one of the goals that David had initially was to hire as many people as possible from the neighborhood. Um, and it's a lofty goal. It's an important one. We still try to do that. We still make that a point of emphasis. But now as we have truly gotten structured job descriptions and we know what, those, what gifts and abilities that those folks need to have, um, we can't always do that. Um, and we try in other ways to engage the neighborhood in terms of volunteering and working with us. And we, you know, we make it a point of emphasis, but at the same time, I would say that was kind of a hard lesson because neighborhood transformation is really about working with the community. It's about bringing the community into your clinic as much as you're able. And we do some education, and we have some great partnerships in our neighborhood, but there are times when um, it's just not in the best interest of our clinic and our program um, to hire 
from the neighborhood. We don't always have the best options for that. And we'd like to be able to work on that with some other neighborhood partners in terms of job training programs and, and looking at some opportunities for that. But um, that was probably a really strong challenge, I think, in the beginning years, not just in terms of the volunteers, but um, staff as well. And I want to add just one thing. Of the initial five to seven people who came from the neighborhood and worked in the clinic and then were released, zero were because of competence. They were all competent at what they did. That was We didn't miss the boat there. The attitude was here. There was the attitude. It was their own neighbors and other people that all of a sudden this place of power and let's go, let's go, or we're taking a lunch break. One real quick story, the chairman of our board at the time, because I was a volunteer CEO, was a JAG colonel, retired, was head of the entire JAG, the judicial system of the Air Force in the Middle East. She grew up in the neighborhood, came back to the neighborhood. In the midst of all this turmoil, as the chairman of the board, she had the flu. She went into the clinic, pretty busy, sat there 45 minutes. Nobody came up to her. Nobody saw her. Nobody anything. And then she left. And, you know, obviously, if you have that kind of attitude, don't do it to your chairman of the board. But it was a... It was a learning process. It's not just the neighborhood. It's not just the skill qualification. It's the heart. Susan came in to do some observation before she came on board as a staff member. She's the current CFO. Um, Her first question to David was, is this a free clinic? And he said, well, no, it better not be. And why would you ask me that kind of a question? So the response was nobody was collecting co-pays. Nobody was taking payments. Nobody even asked those kinds of questions. And, And some of that comes from just... You know, we'll just deal with it later and and learning that we had to do along the way. But those are important things. Uh, Another important thing as far as staff is we do have a statement of faith that all of our staff um, attest to. Uh, We do include that as part of our interview process. We've included it um, in all of our information that's been reviewed by the HRSA staff who come to do site visits. Um, it's It's a certainly a Christian statement of faith. Um, but, again, as we're looking at fit, um, one of our goals is to make sure that we have folks who um, have the same heart and the same vision that we have. So um, I get that question a lot, too, is, you know, how do you know and how do you deal with that? Uh, but we include that in all of our employment information and make that part of the process. Um, services, we do primary care. That's our point of emphasis. We contract for specialty services. Um, and then as an FQHC, we offer a sliding fee scale. We were doing that before we received FQHC funding, um, again, knowing where what our end goal was, if you will. Um, we get some funding to support that, uh, but we have a program that allows us to see patients regardless of their ability to pay. Remember, if you recall earlier at the very beginning when we talked about choosing uh, choosing the model, choosing the free clinic model or the FQHC model, uh, so these are things we had to look at. How productive do our providers need to be? Uh, what kind of marketing are we going to do? Um, as we business plan, as we make projections, what does that look like? 
um, what share of our market are we bringing into the clinic? And if they're going elsewhere, how do we deal with that? And then bringing on that financial expertise. Um, just a quick note on marketing. One of the things that happened is the buildup from 06 to 11 when the clinic opened. And, and, you know, it was such a big deal in 2011 when the clinic opened. There was all this PR. There was lots of outreach to the community. But then it was almost like everybody took a breath. So not much happened as far as marketing goes during um, the next couple of years, actually. So last year when we were funded, um, one of the first things we did in the fall was participate in a neighborhood outreach event. We, so we had people walking by going, can I see a real doctor here? It was like, uh, yes, and if you don't know that, we have a significant problem. So one, we had to remind ourselves of the transient neighborhood that we live in where there are lots of people who come in and out of the neighborhood, um, and we did a lot to reintroduce ourselves to the neighborhood. Um, so in the first quarter of this month, we had almost as many new patients as we had had last year. Um, and part of that was just having to remind ourselves um, of the context of where we were and then the fact that we needed to be in constant communication with our neighbors and our potential patients. Um, so, you know, we do a health minute on the local radio station. We're at every community event. We're at every school event in our neighborhood. Uh, and this has been a really important thing for us, I think, and especially as we reintroduce ourselves. We showed you the pictures of the expansion. When we had our grand opening for the expansion, we had over 150 people who came. Many of them were people who had been partnering all along the way for the 10 years, but a lot of them were just interested community members who weren't quite sure uh, exactly what we were doing. Um, and so now we, we get a, in the, not as much as we did in August, but at the beginning of the time after we opened the new space, you know, this feels like a real doctor's office. Oh, you guys are expanding. So it, I think it gives the sense to the neighbors and the community that we're here to stay. We're committed to you in a very different way. We've kind of taken that next step. Um, and that's been an important part, I think, of the growth um, and the way that we've been able to bring in uh, new patients. Sustainability is funding, raising capital. Um, we do that in multiple ways. We have a somewhat diversified financial structure. Uh, of course, right now, um, the federal grant is a significant part of that, but we don't want that to be uh, what we rely on most heavily. Um, and so we're always looking for those opportunities. We look at ways to maximize our billing and collections. Um, we do that in, in a way that we can show grace to patients, but that we can also be financially responsible. Do you want to talk? So in summary, um, and then we'll answer questions. And by the way, you saw the reason we wanted to bring up Norton Healthcare and Southeast Christian, not because we're here, but from the beginning, you had to have somebody give you seed money. Neither organization allowed us to just say, hey, we'd like 100000 or hey, we'd like... Well, they wanted business plans down to the detail, down to the dime. They wanted follow-up, but it's that seed money, which is what got us started. So, yes, we're always thankful to them because they helped us get over the hump. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. Uh, now that we are an FQHC, we're in great financial shape, but 
We now, there is so much to do with the FQHC CFO work. Susan hired a lady to do, suit, uh, to do the day-to-day -day work so that she can actually do the forecasting and FQH follow-up. You saw the increase in patients. You saw that we hung in there over and over. At one point, we did have 10, 11 staff in a 2,600-square-foot building. And it was ridiculous. But had we started with a 6,700-square-foot building, we wouldn't be here. So the advice was sound. The challenges when we first started this, other than Southeast and Norton, zero businesses, zero banks, zero anyone had any interest in what we were doing in the West End. Their perception was what we're going to do is fail. And that went from 2006 to 2014 till we got the lookalike. The two FQHCs in the area tremendously opposed us on every single step of the way till the 2015 FQHC because Phyllis had us do something called HIPSA, Health Professional Shortage Area, and these two clinics were trying to say, oh, we take care of all these patients. Well, if that's true, your HIPSA score should be very low. It was moderately high when Phyllis encouraged us to redo it. It went up higher. There went the argument. How can you say you're taking care of people in the Shawnee area when the health professional shortage score is so high Says these people aren't getting care? But now we're all on the same side. We all work together. So two things on long-term sustainability. The, the CFO-type position, somebody who really will either give you the time or do that for you as you're going through that model, and then the staffing that it's great to get people from the neighborhood. It's great to get people not from the neighborhood. It's fine if they have these great resumes. But if they aren't in it with their heart the same way you are, you're going to lose. And one of the people who's really important in that for us is Dr. Brent Duncan, who is our original physician staff member, who's still there, who moved his family into the neighborhood and is very much a part of the neighborhood. He rides his bike to work every day, so people see him. So, um, But he still makes phone calls to patients, and he reaches out to them. They know him in the supermarket or the little grocery store. So um, that, too, has been a significant part. So key staff really um, are important as you move forward um, but just closing with prayer and God's timing and you heard David say how even from the beginning I think in the very first meeting when there were 15 or 16 of us in a room trying to figure out what to do and what direction to go to um, all of that has been bathed by prayer with prayer and certainly um, our churches who have partnered with us in prayer um, that's an important part of what we do and how we start our day at the clinic um, and God's timing and that's the hardest lesson because, you know, you want it to happen when, it, when you want it to happen. That's just kind of the culture we live in today. 
But one of the things I had said to David when we were funded last year is, you know, David, if we had gotten this grant two years ago, we were not ready. We would have been in big trouble, I think, just trying to keep up. Um, And so just kind of taking a moment to step back and see where God prepared us all along the way to be ready, um, to be ready on August the 1st, August the 11th of 2015 for that email when it came in, um, for the board to be ready, for the policies and procedures to be in place, um, for the staff to be ready to take on the challenges. We've had an incredibly busy and blessed year, but we frankly haven't really stopped and hardly time to take a breath um, because there's so many things that we have needed to do. Um, In January, we'll be bringing on a dental practice to provide dental services to our patients. Um, The dentist who owned that practice retired. Um, It's the only dental practice in our neighborhood. So the opportunity, he's always been our linkage agreement partner, um, and it was his goal that he be able to partner with us in a much stronger way. Um, And he had always hoped that we would be able to purchase the clinic or his practice and make that part of our services. Um, So we've gotten some grant funding to be able to do that. Um, And so to be able to integrate services for patients, we're looking at adding behavioral health services. Um, And we just pray. We pray every day for the right person at the right moment. Um, I need an administrative assistant. I need the right person at the right moment. I would like to have had that person four days ago. But, um, you know, I know that God is preparing, even at this time, someone for that position. Um, So I think all of you will resonate with that. But just to hear it um, and to be intentional about prayer and to really um, step into and live into God's timing of things. Thank you all. Questions? About anything. Yes, ma'am. You had mentioned previously that you're able to minister spiritually to your patients at your main health center. Are you also able to do that at your school center? We don't do it as much at the school centers. Um, frankly, one of the reasons is time. Um, and staffing, so we don't have a lot of staff who are who staff that program right now. We actually have a grant in to help us increase staff. But if a patient asks us to pray with them, we do. Um, we don't initiate uh, as intentionally. At the primary clinic, we have a prayer room that's designated um, to provide that ministry to folks as they would need it. And that's actually my breakfast in a couple of weeks with the pastors is how, how can they fit into um, providing that service with us. Um, so, no. Not to the same degree that we do, but it's interesting that many people, as soon as they know we're part of Shawnee Christian Healthcare Center, um, they'll ask for prayer, and so we're able to do that. And we have great school partnerships where we are now at the school level too. So, other questions, ma'am. We do that with lab because it's a required one, but our partnership with both of the specialists, they actually have agreed to offer um, discount payments or discount uh, services. So all of our partners offer some kind of sliding fee or charity care. So most of the hospitals or other organizations, and and so Norton, for example, they also, one of their offices provides our diagnostic imaging. Um, And as part of that, if it's a referral from our clinic, they're automatically getting the discounted rates. Um, I was going to ask, so do most of the like, physicians, like practitioners, are they like full-time 
or is it on a volunteer basis? Everyone is paid, staff, um, who are our providers at the moment, except we do have a PA, a physician's assistant who's volunteering, but she is volunteering until um, about two weeks from now, and then we'll hire her um, on. But they're paid staff. Um, and then we use volunteers in different ways. So we have a volunteer pharmacist who works at Walgreens for his day job, but he volunteers with us once a week, helps with medication management and patient education. We have um, college students who volunteers. We have a number of interns from the different medical school or nursing programs uh, or community health, but our staff are all paid. The physician probably makes roughly 80% of what he would on the east end of town, 11 miles away. The nurse practitioners and PA, 90, 95%. Is that the main difference, so like between FQHC and then the free clinic? Yeah, the free clinic is much more dependent on volunteer staffing. Mm -hmm. Yes? For the population you serve, are there any major groups of people that you're unable to, to treat or serve due to ineligibility or lack of? There's not at this point. We are, we're able to serve anyone regardless of ability to pay. Um, we have the option of waiving fees. Um, the providers are able to do that. We have outreach staff who meet with patients who may have particular financial needs. But with our grant funding, not just the federal grant funding, but some other funding we have, we're able to provide those services. And we'll even help. You know, we sometimes will help with um, utilities if that's a patient need. We had a patient who uses oxygen at home and um, their electricity was about to be cut off. Um, so we have a fund that allows us to support those kind of efforts too. Yeah. What is the prescription of 340B? Uh, 340B is a discount pharmacy program. So as a federally qualified health center, we're eligible to participate in that. Um, right now, we're contracting with two Kroger pharmacies. So if our patients go to that pharmacy, they get a discounted price on uh, their medications. I was just going to say, I, I, the reason why I came to the session was I currently work in an MPHPC, and, uh, yeah, um, and uh, I had previously been in prior practice for a number of years. But the clinic that I'm in is a um, is a daughter clinic of the main um, clinic, and it's sort of the second cousin half removed kind of situation. Um, and they are trying to do all of those other things that you're talking about in terms of we have a behavioral health provider, we have a social services person, um, we have dental hygienists in our office. Um, but the but. Um, I, I'm like listening to you wanting to like move you to my workplace because the uh, it's very um, yeah that's a great idea but you know so we have those people but we don't have the people who get it out in a in a practical um, way and I hear you saying that uh, you know the one step at a time and to get the right advisors in mm -hmm. uh, because they're just like oh yeah we should have a behavioral health person and poof this person appears in our mm -hmm. office. And we don't have the method or the modality to utilize them and, and all of those things. Yeah, it's, um, you know, being strategic about those things, and, and this morning I actually did a presentation about strategic planning, uh, but having some kind of roadmap uh, for where you're going and bringing your staff along. And, and, you know, it happens a lot of times where we do need a behavioral health person, but my goal is that when we hire that person, everybody knows how they fit um, into the program and what the expectations are, so being able to communicate well among staff and, and finding the right fit makes all the difference. Mm. He was the 
Hmm. Yes, ma'am. We already are. We are um, National Health Service Corps. Um, and we actually have one of our nurse practitioners who's receiving some scholarship or loan repayment um, through National Health Service Corps. But we're listed on the site. Uh, we're listed on National Health, Ugh, Health Service Corps site. Um, I think there's actually a booth, too, I saw um, out in the um, expo room. But we, we are also, listed. And we also use Project MedSend. Uh, in fact, one of our nurse practitioners is using Project MedSend, so you can get that as well. I mean, yes, ma'am. We do. Our um, patient and community engagement staff member is a master's level social worker, and then she has an outreach worker who works underneath her. Uh, and then we do care coordination, which is um, an RN who's providing that service. But the three of them work very closely together to meet um, social service needs of our, our patients. And, you know, the language now and the thing that's kind of a, moving to the top of the heap in healthcare is addressing social determinants of health. Um, so I think as an FQHC and with our community model, we're going to be in a great place to, to join in that conversation. I think you can tell, if you hear me with the passion and the struggle, but zero knowledge about the technical stuff. And then you hear Phyllis talk with all the technical knowledge. And then Susan, who was uh, the CFO of our cardiology practice, 27 cardiologists for over 20 years, then head of a hospital CFO, and then came, uh, yeah, the women rule, but they're smart. <laughs> and you, got, you, just, you can have these ideas, and you just have to be humble or... On our phones is a picture of me when I graduated from medical school in 74 where I looked like a hippie. And Susan said, if you aren't nice to Phyllis and you don't do it right, she'll show that at the end. <laughs> so just be humble. Be humble and let the experts work. It has been, it has been an amazing. I probably have, Emily would probably tell you I've gone home maybe 280 times and said this won't work, this stinks, nothing's going right. When we got down to 30,000, I had a meeting with the staff, and I said, we're down to 30,000. And they, one of the ladies started crying, saying, why would you tell us such a horrible thing? And I said, well, the other option is to get to zero and just lock the door. So we, we have had ferment, but when you make it and when you stay with it in the parent. And with what you said, what I'm amazed that Susan and Phyllis do when they have this prayer time and this devotion time in the morning, no, people aren't perfect, but the ones that don't want to work like a team, they're gone. They just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work to be a strong, independent individual here because there is so much team concept wrapped around faith and prayer, and, and it just, it, it's, look, every board members, uh, I, we are all members of the clinic, which you, you need 51%, and many struggle with that. We have 100 so I think that speaks to what's going on. We have a website, shawneechristianhealthcare.org, so you can look us up. We take volunteers. We take interns. Free labor is always welcome. Um, and we've started some great programs um, with our volunteers. Uh, but we also, um, you'll see our uh, current openings posted there as well. So um, if you'd like to partner with us in that way, we're wide open. Thank you all very much.